Greetings, folk. It's Nick Shbu Engel, and I have got, I've got in my hands here Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom, which the Daily News writes, a tale of anger and sorrow, love and joy, grace and elegance, and I'm sure a lot more than that. But I'm going to plunge right now into um, chapter 20, which is page 192. So just a little bit of background as to why I'm reading this at this particular time. As a, as a, a white South African, I'm wanting to learn more about the history of my black brothers and sisters. Um, so I'm wanting to be humble and, and contrite and, and to learn, to see things through the experiences of, of uh, my black brothers and sisters. Okay, I'm going to read here, page 192. The anti-removal campaign in Sophia Town was a long-running battle. We held our ground, as did the state. Throughout 1954 and into 1955, rallies were held twice a week, on Wednesday and Sunday evenings. Speaker after speaker continued to decry the government's plans. The ANC and the Ratepayers' Association, under the direction of Dr. Kulma protested to the government in letters and petitions. We ran the anti-removal campaign on the slogan, Over Our Dead Bodies, a motto often shouted from the platforms and echoed by the audience. One night it even roused the otherwise cautious Dr. Kulma to utter the electrifying slogan used to rally African warriors to battle in the previous century. Zemb in Como Magualandini. The enemy has captured the cattle, you cowards. The government had scheduled the removal for 9th of February 1955. As the day approached, Oliver Tambo, or OR, and I were in the township daily meeting local leaders discussing plans and acting in our professional capacity for those being forced out of the area or prosecuted. We sought to prove to the court that the government's documentation was often incorrect and that many orders to leave were therefore illegal. But this was only a temporary measure. The government would not let a few illegalities stand in its way. Shortly before the scheduled removal, a special mass meeting was planned for Freedom Square. 10,000 people gathered to hear Chief Lutuli speak. But upon his arrival in Johannesburg, he was served with a banning order that forced him to return to Natal. The night before the removal, Joe Modise, one of the most dedicated of the local ANC leaders, addressed a tense meeting of more than 500 youthful activists. They expected the ANC to give them an order to defy the police and the army. They were prepared to erect barricades overnight and engage the police with weapons and whatever came to hand the next day. They assumed our slogan meant what it said, that Sophia Town would be removed only over our dead bodies. 
that after discussions with the ANC leadership, including myself, Joe told the youth to stand down. They were angry and felt betrayed. But we believed that violence would have been a disaster. We pointed out that an insurrection required careful planning or it would become an act of suicide. We were not yet ready to engage the enemy on its own terms. In the hazy dawn hours of 9th of February, 4,000 police and army troops cordoned off the township while workers raised empty houses and government trucks began moving families from Sapphire Town to Meadowlands. Sure. It reminds me of, of a jazz song that I learned when I was at university. It feels so strange, but I kind of feel like I should play that song. No, I, I had never fully learnt its meaning. I knew about the removals, but I hadn't studied them or read about them as I am today. So I'm, I'm going to play the song now. This is totally unplanned.
Port Meadowlands. Sure, brings back memories of when I was at university when we used to play that song together, jazz gigs. We did some, we actually did some gigs at Shabin's. We did gigs in we did corporate functions. We did various um, different gigs. That was around the year 94, 95, so 40 years after those actual removals in 55. feels so strange to be be playing that song in the middle of reading about this history that I know less than I probably should know about, but we can redeem the time and learn. Lord, I pray that you heal our nation as we learn. Yeah, I'm reading in Wikipedia now here about Meadowlands and also the song says um, Sapphire Town had been a cultural center particularly for African jazz music prior to this forced removal and relocation. The forced move away from the Sapphire Town township inspired Strike Vilakazi or Vilakazi to compose Meadowlands. Originally sung by Nancy Jacobs and her sisters, Meadowlands was set to an infectious jive beat. It featured music writer Todd Machikiza on the piano. As with many other protest songs of this period, Meadowlands was made popular both within and outside South Africa by Miriam Makeba, and it became an anthem of the movement against apartheid. Several other songs, including Makeba's Sapphire Town is Gone and Bye Bye Sapphire Town by the Sun Valley Sisters, also referred to the relocation from Sapphire Town. Meadowlands has subsequently been quoted in compositions by South African musicians, especially in Cape Town, and was covered by several artists, including the Tulips and Dolly Khatebe. The song was performed outside South Africa by several artists during the apartheid era, exposed, helping expose the injustices suffered by oppressed racial groups. According to commentator Michaela Verschbo. In 2007, it was included in the collection Essential South African Jazz. The lyrics of the song were written in three languages Isizulu, Sisutu, and Tsotsital, or street slang. Meadowlands was superficially sunny and upbeat, including the line, We're moving night and day to go to Meadowlands. We love. Meadowlands. This led the South African government to mistakenly believe that the song supported the relocation program. This interpretation was the result of the government relying on a literal translation of the lyrics. The government was so pleased with the song that Filakesi was praised by a bureaucrat for the song and reportedly had a housing application approved. However, the lyrics were intended to be ironic. The residents of Sapphiretown understood this interpretation and sang the song as their possessions were removed from the township by government trucks. Yo. Thus, the song has been refreshed to, to as a notable example of using ambiguous meaning to convey anti-government sentiment in a covert manner. Vershbo described the lyrics of the song such as we will move all night and day to go 
stay in Meadowlands, you'll hear the white people say, let's go to Meadowlands, as expressing the emotional devastation of the forced move. Scholar Gwen Ansel stated that it was as rich in nuance as a traditional fable. So that sounds like um, white <laughs> uh, voices speaking about the song. So we need to chat to some of um, our black brothers and sisters about their thoughts on the song. Okay, let's go back to Nelson Mandela's uh, chapter there. The night before the ANC had evacuated several families to pre-arranged accommodation with pro-ANC families in the interior of Sophia Town. But our efforts were too little and too late and could be only a stopgap measure. The army and the police were relentlessly efficient. After a few weeks, our resistance collapsed. Most of our local leaders had been banned or arrested, and in the end, Sophia Town died not to the sound of gunfire, but to the sound of rumbling trucks and sledgehammers. One can always be correct about a political action one is reading about in the next day's newspaper. But when you are in the center of a heated political fight, you are given little time for reflection. Thinking of the Bible where it says, we sat down by the rivers of Babylon and wept. Let's read on in Tata Mandela. We made a variety of mistakes in the western areas anti-removal campaign and learned a number of lessons. Over our dead bodies was a dynamic slogan but it proved as much a hindrance as a help. A slogan is a vital link between the organization and the masses it seeks to lead. It should synthesize a particular grievance into a succinct and pithy phrase while mobilizing the people to combat it. Our slogan caught the imagination of the people, but it led them to believe that we would fight to the death, no resistance, I mean to resist the removal. In fact, the ANC was not prepared to do that at all. We never provided the people with an alternative to moving to Meadowlands. When the people in Sophia Town realized we could neither stop the government nor provide the tenants with housing elsewhere, their own resistance waned and the flow of people to Meadowlands increased. Many tenants moved willingly for they found they would have more space and cleaner housing in Meadowlands. We did not take into account the different situations of landlords and tenants. While the landlords had reasons to stay, many tenants had an incentive to leave. The ANC was criticized by a number of Africanist members who accused the leadership of protecting the interests of the landlords at the expense of the tenants. The lesson I took away from the campaign was that in the end, we had no alternative to armed and violent 
resistance. Over and over again, we had used all the non-violent weapons in our arsenal. Speeches, deputations, threats, marches, strikes, stayaways, voluntary imprisonment. All to no avail, for whatever we did was met by an iron hand. A freedom fighter learns the hard way that it is the oppressor who defines the nature of the struggle and the oppressed is often left no recourse but to use methods that mirror those of the oppressor. At a certain point, one can only fight fire with fire. Thinking of Martin Luther King quote here. King said, Darkness cannot cast out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot cast out hate. Only love can do that. I know Tata Mandela is not saying here, in fighting fire with fire, he's not saying fight hate with hate. But it is interesting that Martin Luther King, also through his readings of Gandhi, who was reading Tolstoy, who was reading the Bible, uh, stuck to that philosophy of, of non-violent resistance with, uh, with absolute um, passion and, and perseverance. And of course, Tata Mandela and his colleagues took up the arms. But one can, can understand Mandela's frustration and Ainsley's frustration at all those methods that he's just mentioned um, not being effective. Anyway, let's read on here. Education is the great engine of personal development. It is through education that the daughter of a peasant can become a doctor, that the son of a mine worker can become the head of the mine, that a child of farm workers can become the president of a great nation. He may have been speaking of himself there. It is what we make out of what we have, not what we are given, that separates one person from another. Since the turn of the century, Africans owed their educational opportunities primarily to the foreign churches and missions that created and sponsored schools. Under the United Party, the syllabus for African secondary schools and white secondary schools was essentially the same. The mission schools provided Africans with Western-style English language education, which I myself received. We were limited by lesser facilities, but not by what we could read or think or dream. Yet even before the nationalists came to power, the disparities in funding tell a story of racist education. The government spent about six times as much per white student as per African student. Education was not compulsory for Africans and was free only in the primary grades. Fewer than half of all African children of school age attended any school at all, and only a tiny number of Africans received high school certificates. 
Even this amount of education proved distasteful to the nationalists. Africana has always been unenthusiastic about education for Africans. To whom it was simply a waste for the African was inherently ignorant and lazy and no amount of education could remedy that. The Afrikaner was traditionally hostile to Africans learning English for English was a foreign tongue to the Afrikaner and the language of emancipation to us. In 1953 the national nationalist dominated parliament passed the Bantu Education Act which sought to put apartheid stamp on African education. The act transferred control of African education to the Department of Education from the Department of Education to the much loathed Native Affairs Department. Under the act, African primary and secondary schools operated by church and mission bodies were given the choice of turning over their schools to the government or receiving gradually diminished subsidies Either the government took over the education for Africans or there would be no education for Africans. African teachers were not permitted to criticize the government or any school authority. It was intellectual, bias, scup, a way of institutionalizing inferiority. Dr. Hendrik Verwoet, the Minister of Bunch Education, explained that education must train and teach people in accordance with their opportunities in life. His meaning was that Africans did not and would not have any opportunities, therefore why educate them? There is no place for the Bantu in the European community above the level of certain forms of labor, he said. In short, the Africans should be trained to be menial workers, to be in a position of perpetual subordination to the white man. To the ANC, the act was a deeply sinister measure designed to retard the progress of African culture as a whole and if enacted permanently set back the freedom struggle of the African people the mental outlook of all future generations of Africans was at stake as Professor Matthews wrote at the time education for for ignorance and for inferiority in Favut schools is worse than no education at all the act and Ferwood's crude exposition of it aroused widespread indignation from both black and white. That's interesting. With the exception of the Dutch Reformed Church, which supported apartheid and the Lutheran mission, all Christian churches opposed the new measure. But the unity of the opposition extended only to condemning the policy, not resisting it. The Anglicans, the most fearless and consistent critics of the new policy, were divided. Bishop Ambrose Reeves of Johannesburg took the extreme step of closing his schools, which had a total enrollment of 10,000 children. But the Archbishop of the Church in South Africa Anxious to keep children off the streets, handed over the rest of the schools to the government. Despite their protests, all the other churches did the same, with the exception of the Roman Catholics, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the United Jewish Reformed Congregation, who soldiered on without state aid. Even my own church, the Wesleyan, handed over their 200 
thousand African students to the government. If all the other churches had followed the example of those who resisted, the government would have been confronted with a stalemate that might have forced a compromise. Instead, the state marched over us. Okay, I'm now skipping ahead to halfway down page 199. Manila writes, The Congress of the People represented one of the two main currents of thought operating within the organization, the ANC. It seemed inevitable that the government would ban the ANC, and many argued that the organization must be prepared to operate underground and illegally. At the same time, we did not want to give up the important public policies and activities that brought the ANC attention and mass support. The Congress of the People would be a public display of strength. The dream for the Congress of the People was that it would be a landmark event in the history of the freedom struggle, a convention uniting all the oppressed and all the progressive forces of South Africa to create a clarion call for change. Our hope was that it would one day be looked upon with the same reverence as the founding convention of the ANC in 1912. We sought to attract the widest possible sponsorship and invited some 200 organizations, white, black, Indian and colored, or send representatives to a planning conference at Tongart near Durban, sorry, to send the representatives to, to Tongard near Durban in March 1954. The National Action Council created there was composed of eight members from each of the four sponsoring organizations. The chairman was Chief Lutuli, and the secretariat consisted of Walter Sisulu, later replaced by Oliver after Walter's banning forced him to resign. Yusuf Kachalia of the SARC, Stanley Lollan of the South African Colored People's Organization, and Lionel Bernstein of the Congress of Democrats, COD. Formed in Cape Town in September 1953 by colored leaders and trade unionists, CACPO was the belated offspring of the struggle to preserve the coloured vote in the Cape and its sought to represent coloured interests. SACPO's founding conference was addressed by Oliver Tambo and Yusuf Kachalia. Inspired by the Defiance campaign, the COD was formed in late 1952 as a party for radical left-wing anti-government whites. The COD thought... Sorry... Though small and limited, mainly to Johannesburg and Cape Town, had an influence disproportionate to its numbers. Its members, such as Michael Harmel, Bram Fisher and Rusty Bernstein, were eloquent advocates of our cause. The COD closely identified itself with the ANC and the SAIC and advocated a universal franchise and full equality between black and white we saw the COD as a means whereby our views could be put directly to the white public. The COD served an important symbolic function for Africans. Blacks who had come into the struggle because they were anti-white discovered that 
there were indeed whites of goodwill who treated Africans as equals. The National Action Council invited all participating organizations and their followers to send suggestions for a freedom charter. Circulars were sent out to townships and villages across the country. If you could make the laws, what would you do, they said. How would you set about making South Africa a happy place for all the people who live in it? Some of the flyers and leaflets were filled with the poetic idealism and characterized that characterized the planning. We call the people of South Africa black and white. Let us speak together of freedom. Let the voices of all the people be heard and let the demands of all the people for the things that will make us free be recorded. Let the demands be gathered together in a great charter of freedom. The call caught the imagination of the people. Suggestions came in from sports and cultural clubs, church groups, ratepayers associations, women's organizations, schools, trade union branches. They came on serviettes, on paper torn from exercise books, on scraps of full scap, on the backs of our own leaflets. It was humbling to see how the suggestions of ordinary people were often far ahead of those of the leaders. The most commonly cited demand was for one man, one vote. There was a recognition that the country belongs to all those who have made it their home. That's beautiful. Then I'm just going to give some bits and bobs now. Um, Page 204, jumping ahead a bit, and therefore we the people of South Africa, black and white, together equals countrymen and brothers, adopt this freedom charter, and we pledge ourselves to strive together, sparing nothing of our strength and courage until the democratic changes here set out have been won. The charter then lays out the requirements for a free and democratic South Africa. So I'm just going to read the headings of each of these aspects of the charter. The people shall govern. All national groups shall have equal rights. The people shall share in the country's wealth. The land shall be shared among those who work it. I think, think these things are still critical for today because the land issue still in 2020 today has not been resolved or fully dealt with. We then go to chapter 21 on page 207. Let's read. In early September 1955, my bans expired. I had last had a holiday in 1948 when I was untested, an untested lightweight in the ANC with few responsibilities beyond attending meetings of the Transvaal Executive and addressing the odd public gathering. So Mandela hadn't had a holiday for seven years at that point in '55. Now, at the age of 38, I had reached the light heavyweight division and carried more pounds and more responsibility. I had been confined to Johannesburg for two years, chained to my legal and political work, and had neglected Mandela family affairs in the Transkei. I had been keen to visit the countryside, Again, to be in the open felt and rolling valleys of my childhood. I was anxious to see my family and confer with Sabata and Daliwonga on certain problems involving the Transkei, while the ANC was eager that I confer with them on political matters. 
I was to have a working holiday, the only kind of holiday I knew how to make.